Father, we thank you that we can declare these truths from your word and music, and we pray now that as we've had an opportunity to worship you in song, that we would continue to worship you through the teaching of your word, that you would help me, that you would strengthen me, give me wisdom as I expound upon your word, that we'd be faithful to it, to divide it rightly, God, and that you prepare the hearts of those who are here to receive the word that you've prepared for them. God, that we would be humbled when we come before your word, that we would see it as the very truth into our lives in a world that is full of lies and chaos, that we would fasten ourselves to your truth and to you alone, God. And we thank you for sharing this with us, Lord, sharing of your great love by coming down and sending yourself in the form of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and that we would um, just see this depiction of humility and that we would use it as the way that we pattern our own lives and our behaviors, God, as we live out our Christian walk in this world around us. God, we ask that you be glorified through it, and we just want to proclaim our love for you as we look to it, Lord, to be the instruction to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Uh, It is great to look out here and see so many that have come to worship with us today. I know we have a lot of visitors here. And normally it's when Ray gets to teach that all the visitors are here. So I finally get to tell him, hey, Ray, I, I got an opportunity to teach when all the, all the new folks were here. So um, if you haven't had a chance to just say hi to someone, um, at the end of the service today, we want to just encourage you to go and uh, say hi to someone that you haven't met before and make them feel welcome here at Carlsbad Bible Church. As we open our words this morning, uh, we are still in the book of Philippians, still in chapter 2. Ray brought us through verses 1 through 4 last week. If you aren't familiar with our style of teaching here at Carlsbad Bible Church, we teach in expository fashion, meaning that we start in a book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 1, and we just teach it all the way through, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we feel this is enriching, and we don't want to miss anything that God has for us. So we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2, and I will be confining the message today more through verses 5 and 8, but I'm going to pick back up all the way back with verse 1. So let's read verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Let's just go to the Lord one more time in prayer. We've read the word of the Lord. Let's go to the, word, the Lord of the word one more time. Father, as we have just read uh, this instruction to us this morning, that, God, you would just um, cause this to penetrate our hearts, that we would see just the layers of hum- humility that is expressed through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that you would just grow us more in the knowledge of who you are and help us to align ourselves with your truth and to become more like you, God. And we just thank you for this opportunity to partake of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last week, Ray covered verses one through four, as I've already mentioned. And there he described these three elements of unity that we are to see within our church body. If we are a church that is striving to be like Christ, to live a life of humility to live a life of unity within the body that there are three elements of this unity that are found in these verses and one is that motivation for having the unity to begin with what is it that drives us what is it that motivates us towards this unity by salvation in Jesus Christ we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit provides us with the empowerments and the ablements to want and desire to have unity within the body of Christ. So there is that motivation, one of the elements that we find. And we find that because of Christ's example of humility and sacrifice that we too are motivated by humility, wanting to serve and give ourselves to others. And then we see that we, in that we found the nature of of unity. And we're going to be expounding more on that today and the attitude and the characteristics that are required for unity. So this is more to continue what Ray started with you last week in verses 1 through 4. And we're going to dip back into verses 3 and 4 here in just a moment to see what we came out of and where we are today. And the challenge that has been put before us is living a life that is counter-cultural. It was one of those words that I used at the end of my message Sunday before last, but is also a theme that was in Ray's message last week as he challenged us to look different than the world around us. If we profess Christ as our Savior and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, activating for us for His use, then we should look different. That we shouldn't be like this world. We should stand out among the world because of a Christ-like character that isn't exhibited in those that are around us. And one of the characteristics that a Christian should possess and live out in their life is the life of humility. One who is humble. And we kind of have a definition of what that looks like in the world, what the world's definition of humility is like, but we are going to see how the Scripture defines humility and what it is to be humble in Christ. And so today, starting out with verse 5, we have an exhortation from Paul. Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." And so by saying, have this mind, we have to look back as to what he says in verses 3 and 4 to know what this mind is that we're have to have among ourselves. And you may have a little bit different word there in your translation. Rather than mind, you might see attitude here. What is the attitude we have about ourselves? And mind, it's the same Greek word there, but you could look at it uh, with both of those words. So if we look back at verses 3 and 4, We will see what Paul is speaking of, and this is the mind that we are to have among ourselves. He says, do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul's not using our text today as he often is in his letters to the churches where he is combating some kind of heresy or some kind of theological error where he does with the law and the Judaism being forced on the people, but also with Gnosticism. But he's not correcting a theological error here, but rather he is writing out a most practical subject on how Christians are to get along with one another how we are unified within the body of Christ. And it applies to how we relate to one another in our church, but it also applies to how we relate to one another in our homes and how we relate to one another in our workplaces. To live in Christian unity, we must learn to die to self and humbly live for others for Jesus' sake and for His glory. And so to illustrate this point, Paul sets before us the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as an example of this supreme humility. And the word for humility, and the Greek word here is tapainafrosune. Tapainafrosune, I know it's a big word there, but it means to be humble. Um, The word humble is tapainos that comes from that word, but it's the word that means to get down as flat as you possibly can so that nobody can see you. That is the thought that is conveyed here. It means to be level with the earth, to not think of yourself as being higher than anyone. When I lived in Germany and was picking up the language, uh, the people in southern Germany thought that the people in northern Germany were stuck up and rude. So their way of describing them, they used this word called Hochnessig, which was to look down one's nose at someone below them. So it was a very prideful kind of attitude. But here with humility, it is leveling yourself, getting down so low that you don't see yourself above anyone else. And this was a very foreign concept to the Greeks of that time. In fact, they really didn't have a word to describe this. And if you were someone who was humble in Greek culture, then people looked down upon you. They saw it as a weakness in someone. But here in the scripture, we see it as a Christian attitude, as a Christian character, how our minds are to be framed. And this is the mind or attitude that we are to have. And it should be the pattern of the life of one who professes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And the attitude or mind to be demonstrated here is that it is ours to have in Christ Jesus. And that is humility. The mind that Paul speaks of here in verse 5 could also be translated as attitude. But the Greek word here for mind is phraneo. And it is to be of the same mind. So see how it ties in with unity, the unity of the church. We are to be of the same mind. That mind is to be framed by humility. We are to be agreed together. We are to cherish the same views that align with Scripture. We are to be harmonious in our exercising of these attitudes within the body. So this is how we are to to think and how are we to act with one another. Uh, It also means to direct one's mind to a thing, that word phraneo for mind, direct one's mind to a thing to seek and to strive for. So what is the attitude or mind that we must have towards ourselves? Because Paul is saying we are to act in humility with one another, but this also speaks of how our attitude towards ourselves. 
In humility, the attitude towards ourself is that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We need to get down where we belong. And this is good for us. It's good for us to understand this word because sometimes we have a high estimation of ourselves. Right? We may not think that we do. We think that we live out a life in, in humility. But really when we do the estimation of ourselves compared to God's word and compared to this example we see in Christ, we will see that we probably have a lot of work to do. And we have a long way to go, but that's part of his sanctification by the Spirit. So it's good for us to uh, have these messages that focus on Christ-like humility. This idea that God needs us, and without us, that something is going to fall apart. Well, God doesn't want to use anything about who we are. Again, our flesh, that is not what we are to think of ourselves, that, that he can use this talent that I possess, and he can make much of me. What he wants is us to be an empty vessel so that he can infuse his power into our life. And if it's his power and it's being manifested in us, then it should be to his glory for the sake of Christ. Major Ian Thomas, he's a theologian and writer of the book, The Saving Life of Christ, said this, I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said he would. And that is the essence of humility. It is your attitude towards God working in your life. You won't have an agenda that you are putting before Him. You want His agenda in your life. So now that we have a pretty good idea of what this word humility is, what it means, we see that humility is the essential attitude in our service unto God, in our service to Christ, but that it is also critical in our maintaining unity with others. That's why Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, to be in Him is to have a different nature, that we are reborn, we're regenerated from the inside out. And with this comes that enablement by the Spirit to understand the things of God, to understand His desires of us, to see the attributes of God and want to be like that. We can spiritually discern now that we have the mind of Christ if we are in Christ. That's why Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. But then he does not end it there. Paul could walk away from this topic of humility and have nothing else to say, but he doesn't. He's got a lot more to say here, so we have to follow along with him. What follows, starting in verse 6, declares how Jesus provides this perfect example for us of humility. How he looked upon our dire need as sinners that need to be rescued from our sinful condition, who could not help themselves, and how it looks when one, this being Jesus Christ, is not out for the interests of oneself, but in this perfect demonstration of humility, offers himself for the sake of others. And it is his mind and that attitude that is expressed here that is to be our mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In Christ, we are regenerated. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new mind. We begin to think the things of God, and therefore we should have and be able to demonstrate this attribute of humility in us. And this demonstration is seen to the uttermost in the humility of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. So let's continue with this in verse 6. 
So Paul has told us to have this mind among yourselves. It's yours in Christ Jesus. And then verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So since Paul has just exhorted the church in Philippi to have this attitude of humility, he now directs us to measure it against the standard against the standard of Christ's humility, the one who exhibited this imperfection. In our study Wednesday evening with the young disciples and the children of the word, the two age groups that we've broken up on our Wednesday evening studies, um, we combined those groups this last Wednesday because Ray was out and uh, it, was a, it was a good lesson for us because there Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone that the builders rejected and the builders he was referring to being those who were the religious the, the Pharisees who didn't really want anything to do with Christ, that didn't like his message because he was coming as the suffering servant, and even though that's what Scripture said he would be, they wanted a political savior, they wanted a political redeemer who would overthrow Rome and establish his throne here on this earth, and when he came not to do that, he came to show them humility, they rejected him, and Jesus says that the cornerstone that the, the builders rejected was him. And what is the cornerstone of a building? That is the thing that every, all the weight of the building really rests upon this cornerstone. And it is also the level by which all of the other stones of the building were to be laid as part of the foundation. And that tells us that we are to look to our cornerstone, and that is to be Jesus Christ. We are to align ourselves with, with His level. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith, as Scripture says. And if there is any Christian characteristic that we are aiming to be better at, then we need to look to Christ as the standard that we are to be striving for. And I think this in itself is humbling. And I hope that when we read this Scripture, and as we've read it, that it humbles you to come to this and see this deep theological truth and want to attain this kind of humility in your life. Paul would also have a see here that this is directed to everyone so that we would not say that this is some kind of special spiritual gifting that is only reserved for a few in the church and saying, well, you know, maybe he gave uh, Chris some of this humility, but he doesn't expect for me to exhibit the same kind of faith because that's just not my gift. No, this is an attribute of God that we all strive to possess, that we all have the capacity for in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you have this capacity for humility when you are properly submitted to his lordship. And this isn't some special gift that is given to some and not to others. This is an attribute. And all sincere believers should possess humility. Now, Paul takes men out of the picture and he fixates us on the incarnation of Christ being an act of humility on the part of God. And it's important for us to understand that when we read this, that we know that Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% man when he came to this earth. And he didn't leave any of that behind. And I know it doesn't make mathematical sense to be 100% of one thing, 100% another, but we're not getting into a mathematical exercise. I wouldn't be the one to, to teach you that. We're looking at what theologians call the hypostatic union of God the Father and God the Son. So, hypostatic union being that idea of his being 100% God, 100% man. And Paul says in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, 
And what he's expressing here is that being 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is described in Scripture as the only God, only God, Son of God begotten from the Father. And that word begotten means that he is not made, but rather he is of the same essence of the Father. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We shouldn't understand that firstborn as being the, the one who was born first, but rather he is the first in rank. It's, it's the idea of a rank there, um, not as being a first in line for something, but he is the, the ranking over us as the firstborn of all creation. He was there all the time with God. Verse 16 of Colossians 1, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That Christ was there, part of the triune Godhead from eternity's past, that he wasn't a created being, that he was God. And John, probably where it's illustrated most clearly is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word being Jesus Christ, the divine logos is the Greek word for word there, and that's a direct reference to the Son of God. He existed in the form of God before He was incarnate, before He came in the flesh. And it's a paradox that God Himself would come down from heaven and be consumed, conceived in the womb of a virgin and take on human form and live like us. But this is exactly what he did. When Paul says the form of God, the form, the word for form here that he uses is morphe, and it refers to the nature or character of something, and it emphasizes both the internal form and the external form. In other words, morphe refers to the outward display of the inner reality or the essential form of something which never alters, which never changes. No one could be in the morphe form of God who was not God. And that's how Paul is describing Christ here. Morphe is the essential form which never alters, um, which contrasts with a similar word here called schema. And we will see that Greek word appear just a little bit later but we'll get to that here in a moment. But morphe is the essential form that never alters. That's to be our understanding of this word. It doesn't mean that he was kind of or a partially like God. No, he was true God from true God and of the same essence of the Father. If God possessed the light of his glory. Jesus possesses the same light of his glory. Holiness to the degree that God possesses is to the same degree that Jesus possesses it. The scripture tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. In Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So clearly, he is 100% God. And when he came to this earth, clearly he is 100% man who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He was truly equal with God, which makes, makes the statement that Paul makes here even more remarkable. And some scholars suggest that when Paul enters into this section, starting with verse 5 and going through verse 11, that he actually writes it as a worship song. He's writing a psalm here. 
because Paul is so excited about what Christ is putting on display for us here that he, he breaks out in song about it. Uh, this is not found in Scripture that this is what he's doing, but just the way that it's written, it appears as like a poetic phrasing uh, in the way he does this. And you can see why, because there's so much richness, there's so much depth in this here, and so Paul is singing out about it. You can kind of imagine uh, that here. So he did not regard this being Jesus. He did not regard his position as God as something to be grasped, is what the ESV translation tells us. If you read in NASB, it's the same word. In John chapter 15, 9 through 10, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, got a little out of my notes here. I got excited about this psalm. <laughs> so, he did not regard his position with God as something to be grasped, and he didn't try to hold on to his glory, but he willingly laid it aside. And we have to be careful about how we say that, and we'll uh, look at that in just a moment. But we are, we are all about asserting our rights. You know, in this society, we demand them. You know, we go to protest for our rights. We, we think that we are deserving of them. And when we feel that our rights have been violated, we'll scream out, not fair, and we may kick and scream, uh, but... What we're seeing here is that rather than demanding his rights, and this is speaking of Jesus, he did not assert his rights, although he had the right to claim his rights. Right? This forms the foundation for everything that Paul will say about him. He says, There was no compulsion, no argument, no claiming his prerogatives, no pleading with the Father to send someone else. He voluntarily traveled the distance between heaven and the bloody cross. He did it willingly, gladly, without hesitation. So let's look at another translation of verse 6 real quick. Um, it comes from the Christian Standard Bible. But where the ESV and the NSB used the word, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, this this version uses a different word. It says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. As something to be exploited. And I think that helps in our understanding of this, that he came and he lived in a body of flesh, but he didn't use his godness and exploit the matter, though he could, and though he had the right to, because remember, 100% deity still, but 100% man. This means being God, even in human form, that he had the power to exercise his divine will and power, and yet he chose not to. And it is true that he performed miracles at the appointed time, but if you look back through all the Gospels, I challenge you to find one miracle that he performed for himself or his, his disciples, his followers. I mean, he could have had you know, meals, uh, a nice juicy steak prepared for him. He could have had a place to lay his head. He could have had all these things available to himself. He had that power, but he did not exploit it, though he could. He could have had chariots. He could have had armies. He could have governments bow to him as God by showing his divine strength, but he did not exploit that, even though the Pharisees wanted him to exploit that part of himself, and they felt that would have proved he was God. But no, proving he was God was seen in his humility. He chose not to count equality with God as something to be exploited. And there are layers of humility that are demonstrated in this passage. So first he came to this earth as man. In his incarnation, his humility was seen in here. And then 
Secondly, like the next layer under here is that he shows in humility and that he could have had all this power available in his hands, but he chose not to exercise that. The two expressions of that humility. And it is through the standard that we are to measure our humility. Now, Jesus is also described as meek, and he calls believers blessed because they are meek in the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew. But to be meek does not mean weak. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, using King James Version here, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. The word meek, meek means a strength that is fully surrendered to Christ, fully surrendered to the will of God. It is to describe a strong horse, a horse that has so much power in them, but one that is broken and bridled, that is submitted to its master. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and that was not to put on full display the power that he had at his command, being fully God, but rather it was to demonstrate humility, to be fully submitted to the will of his Father. So coming back to the ESV translation here, the word grasped that is used in the place of exploit, I think it's also something um, that we can we can look at to get, get a better understanding of what this looked like. I want, to, uh, I want you to think back to Adam and Eve when they sinned and they took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? When they took of that fruit, they grasped that fruit. Why did they grasp for it? Well, they wanted to be like God, they wanted knowledge and power, though not being God, and in their taking of that fruit, in their grasping it, they sinned, and humanity fell. And we have been subject to their sin from, from that moment on. They grasped. They took. And I think when we look at this word compared now to Jesus not taking Though he had the power and he had the authority and he had the right, he could handle it, he chose not to take it. Their single act of disobedience led to the fall of humanity. They grasped at desiring to be like God. And yet with Jesus, who was 100% God, he chooses not to consider equality with God as though something to be grasped. Though he had a right to it, he didn't exploit it in his humanity as the God-man. So rather than grasping what he had every right to God as to do as God, instead, Paul tells us in verse 7, he emptied himself. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And this word for emptied is the Greek word kenao. And this speaks of a self-emptying of the Son of God as he became incarnate in humanity. It's where the Greek word kenosis being the Greek word to empty, comes from. And people call this the kenosis passage. And this is setting aside motives to not take advantage even when one can. And that is to empty oneself. And there has been some heresy that has come out of these verses. Those who believe that when Christ emptied himself, that he removed some of his divinity, that he left some behind when he left heaven, and that he wasn't fully God then when he was here, that maybe it was a 50-50 split. But it, it, this is a misinterpretation of this scripture altogether. He was not more human than he was divine, 
he was just as divine as he was human. And it means to empty, but this word can also mean to limit oneself. But notice the way in which he emptied himself. It didn't come by way of taking something away by subtraction, but continuing that verse, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So rather than a subtractive way of emptying himself, he did it by an addition to himself, and that was to take on the form of a servant. Christ doesn't remove his divine nature from himself. He limited his abilities. He did it by adding to himself humanity. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word that is used there for dwelling among us was that he tented among us, that he came and he tabernacled among us. And if you compare this to the Holy of Holies in the temple where God was, his glory had to be cloaked in something. It had to be cloaked behind a curtain. When Christ was crucified, it rent that cloak in two, and now we can enter into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. But what we are to understand here is that his taking on the form of a human was to, in a sense, con- conceal that, that glory. We, we had to be cloaked from it in our human form. We could not look upon it and behold it and really expect to live. So the way he emptied himself is taking the form of a servant. So he could have grasped what was rightfully his as an all-powerful God. He could have brought an end to it all, but he took instead the form of a servant. And I see this symbolized when we share of the Lord's Supper together. And we reference this verse a lot, but I don't think we fully or we always understand what it means when in Mark 14, 22, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and he says, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. So Jesus Christ, he took on humanity. And when he's instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples, it says he took the bread. And what does the bread represent? It represents Christ's body. He willingly humbled himself to take on that flesh nature to become that bread for us, and then he blessed it, right? He blessed the bread. He lived a perfect, sinless life because he was God. And after blessing the bread, he broke it. He gave himself to the utmost for us. He willingly walked the road to Calvary. He endured the scourging, in the crown of thorns and the chastisement and the spitting and the accusations and the nails, all was laid upon him. That is what it is for his bread to be broken. And then what did he do with it? He gave it. He gave it to his disciples. The picture of his grace. We didn't deserve it. But yet he gave it. He gave of himself. The perfect image of abject humility seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. I know we're running up against a, a, a long message here. So this is going to conclude, and I think this is a good stopping point for us. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that you have given to us the things that we need for today. And even though I intend to continue on um, 
were to hold a little bit back, and uh, we know that you have more for us here. We want to uh, feast on your word. We look to it as being our, our spiritual food, and we thank you for the nourishment that it brings into our souls. And I pray, God, as we've learned just what it looks like to be humble, to live a life of humility, and when we compare it to our Lord and Savior, that we see how we don't compare and how we don't live up. We thank you that you are merciful and that you are full of grace and that you extend that towards us. And I pray that you help us in being more Christ-like and maybe learning and growing from what we've seen here today and help us to give up the rights to ourselves, especially within the body of Christ as we seek unity with one another. You just fill us with your spirit and work within us, God, to seek that and to see as the binding agent of that unity, this, this humility that we're supposed to express, considering others better than ourselves. We're challenged by it, Lord, um, but we thank you that you don't just leave us here and don't give us any, any measure to live by, but you give us the perfect standard. Lord, we just want to express our love for you and our thankfulness to you, God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.